Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Welcome back, all of our wonderful listeners, near and far, Israel, outside of Israel, wherever you might be. I'm still Tzvi Hirschfield, and I'm still with Nahama Goldman Barish. Believe it or not, we got her for two parshiot in a row. We might go for three, but she's signaling me that two is enough for her. I don't blame her. I get that reaction a lot. In any event, we are here on Parshat Emor, and it's a very rich Parsha, a lot going on. And Nahama, there is a particular piece of this Parsha that caught your eye. Hi, Tzvi. Wonderful to be back. And yeah, I would say this Parsha, what catches my eye and what I'm always going to look for as a teacher of Tanakh and of Talmud are the narratives. And this is really the second narrative we have in the book of Vayikra. The first was the unexpected tragic death of the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, which we related to in the first podcast we taped. And now we have the death of an unnamed blasphemer, right? He is described as the son of a Yisraelite and the son of an Egyptian, right? He's a half-breed, if you will, half-Egyptian, half-Israelite. And he's going to have an interaction, a fight, essentially, with an Israelite, a full Israelite. And that's going to lead to him cursing God. So, again, the Torah doesn't give us background, doesn't tell us what the fight is about, doesn't tell us much, if anything, about what it means to be half Israelite, half Egyptian when you're out there in the desert having left Egypt and the oppression of Egypt. But we do see that somehow blaspheming, cursing God, that's a really bad thing to do. Absolutely. Although in its initial aftermath, Moshe doesn't know what to do. The people don't know what to do. And there actually has been no outright prohibition of blasphemy, right? This is going to be the test case that leads to the legal precedent. I would say in that manner, in both cases, both narratives, the deaths of the sons of Aaron and the death of the blasphemer, what becomes important from a legal context is both of them become the test case that determine the laws afterwards. You know, it's almost a Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel thing where there's an argument, there's a fight, somebody does something, and it turns out what they did was terrible, and the text seems to assume they should have known it was terrible. And you have that same problem, I think, with the sons of Aaron also. How were they supposed to know that they weren't supposed to do what they're going to do? And that same problem of people behaving in ways that are not expressly prohibited anywhere, at least by their time, and yet they're supposed to somehow know, or they are the unfortunate test cases, as you said, or examples to teach everybody else. 
Absolutely. So one of the things I want to bring up, because there's so little information here and because it's a story, this is where Midrash really comes in and tries to fill in the gaps in the narrative. And what I want to do, I'm going to read a verse and I'm going to talk about how the Midrash really fills in a lot of information in order to connect this story to a previous story. Vayikov ben ha'ish ha'yisraelit et Hashem v'yikalel v'yaviu oto el Moshe v'shem imo shlomit bativri the son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name in blasphemy. We don't know exactly what he pronounced. The word vayikov really means to punch a hole in or to pierce, which again, he kind of punches a hole in the divine, in the divine name perhaps. Vayikalel, he curses, and they bring him before Moshe. And then oddly we're told his mother's name is Shlomit, the daughter of Divri, of the tribe of Dan. Now, first of all, she's the only woman mentioned in the entire book of Leviticus by name, right? So that already is interesting and curious. Also, if we think about her name, Shlomit has within it shalom, right? The elements of peace. What are we going to do with that? Was she some sort of peacemaker trying to make peace, hoping to make peace? And Bat Divri, right, has in it davar, the idea of words, right, or language to the tribe of Don. So she comes from the tribe of Don. And the Midrash tries to puzzle out what circumstance could have led to her having a child with an Egyptian man, given that this is the generation that went out of Egypt. Really, the relationship between Israelites and Egyptians was that of slave and taskmaster. So what would that have looked like? What the Midrash comes up with is the idea that she was married to an Israelite slave. He was sent off on business by an Egyptian taskmaster. The taskmaster makes his way into the bed of Shlomit. Here there are really two versions, one in which she's complicit and allows him in, one in which she has no idea that it's not her husband. We'll leave that to sink in for a moment, maybe because there's no electricity, all men kind of feel and smell the same, whatever. And then this child is born and the child represents, right, very symbolically, this intersection between Egyptian and Israelite culture. A painful and awful one, right? This woman is either raped or she's taken advantage of by this man who owns her or has power over her in some terrible way. So this young man, this one who curses, he has a hard background. Yeah, he really represents a trauma. And I will say scholars like Professor Wendy Zeeler, right, if you get Rachel Adler, are very interested in the power dynamic, right, and the idea that this was not a relaxed relationship. This was not an affair or an intermarriage. Marriage. This represented the power dynamic between the taskmaster and the slave and what that would look like for a woman caught up in that. Whereas the Midrash is really conflicted and there are many Midrashic sources that suggest she was promiscuous. She was going out, right? That she was speaking to all men and maybe she was complicit in this interaction. So to me, it's very interesting when you see a more masculine interpretation or an androcentric interpretation, and then you see modern female scholarship kind of trying to take back a little bit the voice of the woman or trying to speak for what the experience might have been for the woman. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So here we are. The Midrash is identified, at least a Midrash is identified, that this person, this half-Jew, half-Egyptian, and especially in a time when one's yichus, one's familiar relationship, went to the father. 
So she's from the tribe of Don, but it almost emphasizes he's not from the tribe of Don. He's not from the tribe of anyone. And what the Zohar brings, and this is really quite shocking, and it appears also in the Sifra, is that this fight ensues. It says, ben isha Yisraelit. There came out among the Israelites a man, right? And the man who's half and half, half Israelite, half Egyptian. I'm going to connect that to an earlier story with Moshe shortly. But first, I want to talk about why this moment takes place when it does. The Midrash says that this man who is unnamed goes to speak to Moshe about his nachala, his inheritance, right? Who is he going to inherit with? And he goes to Moshe and he says, where is my place in the camp and in the inheritance? I'm from Don. And Moshe looks at him and says, no, you're not. It goes according to your father. Your father's an Egyptian. You have no place in our camp. You essentially have no place in the nachla, in the inheritance of the land. And it is his exit from that encounter, where he has been told in no uncertain terms, and by the way, Moshe and the Midrash does not consult with God, does not pause to ask, what are we going to do with this person who is in our midst, whether it's as a result of the trauma of his mother being assaulted by an Egyptian, so through no fault of her own, or any other explanation. We have this man living amongst us, and we are not giving him a seat at the table. We're not giving him a tent in the camp. As he exits that encounter with Moshe, he sees the Ish Yisraeli. He's the Ben Yisraelite. He's the son of the Israelite woman. He sees a man who is fully Israelite, and they have this fight. And it doesn't take much to then suggest the fight is probably the full Israelite making a mockery of this hybrid, this person who doesn't fully fit. And the Midrash goes as far as to suggest his mother is being called a harlot and he is responding to that kind of indignation, that humiliation of his mother, of his otherness, of the painful reality that he has been forced to recognize is his lot among the children of Israel. And it's really quite brutal. And it's striking. First of all, two things occur to me, which I know also you're going to talk about. Number one, Moshe doesn't consult. And this is the same man who, according to many, at least Ibn Ezra, has an Egyptian name, grew up in an Egyptian court. And he's the one that doesn't seem to be showing sensitivity to this person who has, in a way, the reverse background, right? This somewhat Egyptian child who, through no choice of his own, is also growing up in an Israelite environment. And of course, that the response is to curse God that God is the one who's identified, if you will, as the one who has brought such pain to this person. All that pain and all that trauma, and it devolves into a kind of hatred even. And just one more point, and again, it's the Midrash, I think at its best, suggests that the Ish Yisraeli, the full Israelite, is actually his brother, his half-brother, right? Except that this young man was born to the husband of Shlomit, whereas the half-brother was born to an Egyptian, however that took place. And really, that brings us back to Cain and Hevel. We have a Cain and Abel story going on, and it's, it's quite profound and quite brutal and really tragic. In I'll say even the ending, the ending is that God issues a command to stone him to death, that the people will come out and stone him to death, a very violent ending, and really clarifies that this will be accepted under any term and so on and so forth, is very sad if we begin to look at the individual pieces that the Midrash sets in front of us. So I guess the questions are, how do you think this links back to Moshe? And what's this story doing here now in Vayikra? And uh, as you pointed out, 
where narrative is few and far between. So what we have is at the very beginning of Shemot, at the beginning of Exodus, chapter 2, we have this, and it was in those days, look at this, right? Moshe goes out, notice the same verb, and he goes out to his brethren, but really he's been growing up in the Egyptian palace. I will say in the Prince of Egypt, there's this very powerful scene where Moshe discovers that baby boys have been thrown into the Nile, Hebrew baby boys. And at some point, his sister Miriam, who he doesn't know is his sister, says, go ask the man you call father. Right? This idea that that even really reinforces the similarity between the two stories that Moshe's father figure until this moment is Pharaoh himself, because Bat Paro, the daughter of Pharaoh, has adopted him. And really, he's growing up in the palace as a prince. So he too has an Egyptian father. So yes. to speak, at least so up until speak. now. So to speak. And he goes out to his brothers and he sees their suffering. And what does he see? He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. The Midrash suggests this is the father of that hybrid young man in our story, right? The Midrash really links these two stories together. And there really is a lot of similarity. Moshe is an outsider until he makes his way back in. And of course, he's invited in, not without some pain, but he is invited in and he becomes Moshe Rabbeinu. And here we have this young man who really is left on the outside because of the synthesis between the Egyptian and the Israelite. And so he sees this Egyptian smiting an Ivri, a Hebrew, and what he does is he turns this way and that, and seeing no one, he smites the Mitzri, right? He smites the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And what's really incredible there is Rashi in his commentary says he smites him with the divine name, right? So again, further connection to our story. In our story, the young unnamed man kind of punches a hole through the divine by using the name illicitly. But here, Rashi suggests Moshe recognized the power of the divine name even before he's met the divine. So it's not really a historical story, but it suggests the power of the divine name in smiting, right, in overturning the order of the world and bringing about death. So in this parallel story, you've got somebody who also wants in and They also use the divine name, but their use of the divine name not only permanently excludes them, it actually gets them killed. So what do you think is the message here between these two parallels, and what are we meant to take away? So first of all, I'll say Moshe, of course, in the aftermath of the story I just told, does not have it so easy because when when he goes out the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and then they basically say to him, who do you think you are, right? Who made you an Isha Sarvashofate? Who made you a ruler over us? Are you going to kill us also like you killed the Egyptian? And he actually has to flee for his life. So before he comes back as the leader, Moshe, who God appoints to take them out of Egypt, he he goes through a series of transitions where he actually has to leave before coming back. And, you know, I just want to point out his entry is not as smooth as all that. Nonetheless, he does become who he becomes. I really struggle with the end of the story. On one hand, I recognize the idea that he punches a hole is very violent. There's a violent use of the divine name to express his anger and his hatred, and perhaps by blaspheming the name of the divine. And in that moment, I would say he really has put himself 
far outside the camp. When you blaspheme the name of the God of the Israelites who took them out of Egypt, to some degree in your anger and your hatred, perhaps in a moment of unbelievable self-destruction, he says, you don't want me in? Okay, I'm going to blaspheme your God. I'm going to curse your God, who I would suggest he's holding accountable for this whole system. Sure, because Moshe always speaks for God. So if Moshe tells him something, at least as the Midrash would have it, right? Moshe tells him he's out. So ultimately, he seems to interpret that God is the one who has excluded him. And he's probably filled with rage at God, at Moshe as God's servant, uh, and reacts in a way that on a human level, I guess we find very understandable. Yeah. And if we parallel it to yet another story that lies ahead, the daughters of Tzlavchad, who come as daughters without any sons, right? Their fathers died and they're left five sisters, five girls alone. When they come and ask for Nachala, they say to Moshe, wait, is our father's name going to die out because he had no sons? Can't we get some sort of inheritance? And of course, women don't normally inherit. It's so striking. Cain benot Tzlavchad dovrot, right? Yes, the daughters of Tzlavchad dovrot speak well, which ties us to the Shlomit, the daughter of Divri, right? So she did not have words that were able to redeem her son. And yet in the next book, we're going to have five girls who come and make what seems to be an audacious request for land. And yet their request will be validated by God. And what happens here is also validated by God, but in the extreme opposite, right? He's going to be cut out completely. And even more so, Moshe helps, right? Moshe doesn't push them away. Moshe finds a solution, as opposed to our story now, you know, 38 years earlier, I guess, where Moshe doesn't find the solution. He says, according to the Midrash, you're out. There's a lot going on here. It's stirring up a lot of things for me, this whole idea of who's in and who's out and how we determine that and what Moshe's role may have been or could have been. And I'm wondering how you think this relates to other things that come up in this Parsha about, you know, Kohanim and the Mamzer, the illegitimate child. On a positive note, the second half of Leviticus does remind us to treat the ger, the stranger, in a compassionate way, in an inclusive way. Perhaps we're not yet talking about gay root or conversion as it becomes institutionalized later in the Second Temple and then post-Second Temple period. But this idea that there will be strangers living among us who deserve a certain amount of inclusion, compassion, awareness of their existence actually is quite prominent in the second half of Vayikra, of Leviticus, which is why it's almost jarring that no solution is found, perhaps, again, the answer is he's just stepped too far over the line to make his way back in. Or you could say the gear, the outsider, is treated compassionately, but he still remains an outsider. And maybe this poor young fellow wanted to be part of the tribe of Don. He wanted the ethnic identity. He wanted the peoplehood identity. And he's not going to get that. Right. And the gear is not asking for that. Two of the other, you know, topics you alluded to or you mentioned, the priests and particularly the priests who are blemished, right? Priests who are born with physical disfigurement are not allowed to serve in the temple. That's a really complicated commandment, right? The idea that there are these restrictions based on physical deformity that presumably come from God, right? If children are being born physically deformed, 
where does that come from? And the mom's heir is not so much illegitimate as often people think from unmarried people. Unmarried no. people. It's about an adulterous relationship, which again, the child through no fault of its own has been born into this illicit relationship, adulterous relationship, and is very much excluded, is not allowed to come into the community of Israel in certain ways. And so I think this Parsha as a whole brings up real questions of how do we treat people who are other? And what are we being taught in the Torah? And, you know, I remember hearing Rav Lichtenstein speak about it many years ago about the priests. I have to be honest, I don't remember the bottom line where he went with it. But I remember his willingness to engage in the moral questions that come up from restricting or eliminating the service of a disfigured Kohen. And what do we do with that today? You know, it raises some really big problems. Anytime you have a need to include a certain group, either according to a certain value or according to a certain lineage, you're going to exclude people. By definition, most people in the world are not members of my family. And if they all were, the membership of my family would be ultimately pretty meaningless. And not that they're knocking down the doors being members of my family, I have to be honest. But you could argue, right, that the Torah excludes those Kohanim from serving because like it or not, as many Mepharshim say, it's distracting. And it somehow interferes with our aesthetic need for the Mikdash to be beautiful and perfect. And you could say, well, why doesn't the Torah ask us to overcome that bias? Because sometimes the Torah has to speak to us where we are. And the issue of the Mamzer, again, you could say, you know, we want to make the penalty for adulterous relationships so high, it's not only on the man and the woman that their child will not be accepted. And at a certain level, I understand that. But it still raises the question of which direction do we want to lean? When we're confronted with these situations, do we want to draw thicker lines or do we want to find ways to include more? It's a struggle that I think Judaism has had with regard to inclusion of people with disabilities, right? The question of whether halacha, because I come from a world of halachic responsa, halachic answers to questions, and you can often see, is there a willingness to include people with disabilities or to just exempt them, right? There's this idea that people with disabilities are exempted from the performance of certain mitzvot. So then maybe we don't need to build ramps in our synagogues, and maybe we don't need to have facilities for people who are hearing impaired or who are seeing impaired, because look, it's okay, you're not obligated. But that misses the entire point. That halachic solution is very, very particular to a moment, right? To like, okay, you don't have to worry, you don't have to push yourself. But it doesn't open up the space for them to be a bigger part of the community. And the Mamzer solution, by the way, which of course we find halachic solutions, is essentially to pretend the child is not a Mamzer by not allowing the child to be, let's say, DNA tested today to prove that the husband is not the father. But what you end up doing, and I've heard Rifka Lubitsch speak about this quite passionately, is the child then has no father who's going to oversee its welfare. The biological father is not allowed legal interaction with the child and legal support of the child. And the husband, who's been betrayed and at many times has already divorced the woman, is not willing to take responsibility either. And so our halachic solution allowed us to maybe avoid the branding of mamzer, but it certainly does not allow for inclusivity and it doesn't really allow for the rights of these children to be uh, played out in a moral and compassionate way. We halachically solved something, but we didn't really in my opinion, go go towards the spirit of the law. So if I understand you correctly, and I think I'm there with you, Moshe failed here in a certain way. 
that he, as the master of the oral law in addition to the written law, if we view Moshe as a great rabbi, he should have figured out a way to have this young man be included, perhaps because of his own past or because of legitimate fear. Maybe there are lots of people with this story in the camp. And maybe there are these other Egyptians, the, the Eruvrav, right? The mixed multitude that came out and maybe Moshe's worried. We're in a good place. We're going to receive the land of Israel. All these people want in. I have to protect the authentic identity of the covenant of people of Israel. And I got to draw thick lines and make sure they're out. But there's something so harsh there. Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying at the end. Couldn't he have found another solution? And couldn't he have drawn on his own experience in finding some way of, you know, a punishment was necessary, but perhaps, again, not as harsh as stoning, using it as a test case to say this is really, really serious. And now let's try to understand what led to this. But it's immediate in the same way that Nadav and Avihu are struck down by divine fire. The response of Moshe bringing it to God, there's like an immediate death hanging over this young man. And I personally, when I read the story, you know, I struggle to defend it. Perhaps that's my own limitation because I think of blasphemy as language. And can't we undo language? Can't we rethink language? He said a word he shouldn't have said, or he used a curse he shouldn't have cursed. Can't we dial that back in some way? Can't we find a way to do a tikkun? And, you know, from the readings I did, blasphemy is so heinous. Blasphemy is so perverse to the order of the divine that there's really no way back from it. And so maybe that's my own struggle to understand the magnitude of the crime. But I agree with you, Tzvi. I kind of wish it had ended a little differently. So in both instances, we want Moshe to be more lenient in his definition of who is part of the Jewish people to avoid the situation in the first place. And I guess we hope that God would have been more lenient and not stood for the standard of the holiness of his name, but given this person another chance. So here we are in the 21st century Israel, and lo and behold, we're dealing with big questions of who should be included and who shouldn't be included. We have a law of return in this country that includes people with a Jewish grandparent. So they arrive here with the right to be Israeli citizens, but they're not recognized as Jewish. And what do we do with that? And is that the right system? And we also have this big debate about conversion. What should our conversion standards be? With many rabbis insisting they have to be of the highest standard, only those who are going to be strictly observant should be converted. Again, protecting either the holiness of the Jewish people, the religious level of the Jewish people, and yet... That attitude is leaving a lot of people out who want in. Yeah. How do you want to vote, Nahama? <laughs> when you go out there with your sign, where do you want to protest? I was called the Erevrav this week, actually. So, you know, you can leave leave readers to think which side of the camp I'm on. But the question of conversion and this conundrum that they are entitled citizenship by the right of return and the interior ministry recognizes them as being Jewish enough to make their home and have the rights of citizens, and yet not being Jewish enough to get married, not being Jewish enough to really have a Jewish burial, and so on, is really quite intolerable. I've written articles about civil marriage, and the lack of civil marriage means that if you're not defined as a Jew by the rabbinate, meaning halachically Jewish, you actually can't get married in this country. You can have a civil union, but you can't get married in this country because marriage in this country is only only religious, whether you're Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. And really, we're talking at this point, probably hundreds of thousands of citizens who cannot get married because if a halachic Jew wants to marry someone who's not 
halakhically Jewish, they can't get married, let alone two people who aren't considered Jewish. And I think we really need to do something. I think that the question of what it means to be out when you can't get married, you can't get divorced, you can't be buried in the manner reflecting your practice or your identity is really very morally and religiously problematic. And I think we have become more exclusive in many ways than we need to be. And the halachic standards have become overinflated as a way of creating, like you said, these very thick lines. But we're talking about people who have made their lives here. Many of them have served in the army, have served in other capacities capacities, work in the hospitals, work in the public sector, work in the schools, and yet we're not allowing them to have the Jewish identity that they feel is theirs. You know, we really are in a conundrum. And the more they are pushed away, just to bring us back to our story, of course they're going to think God and religion are terrible because that is what they experience as the source of what's keeping them out and preventing them from being fully integrated, which just sort of reminds you Every rabbi is Moshe in that moment because how that rabbi speaks to those people, to anybody, people associate that with how God is speaking to them and what Judaism and Torah are saying to them. And I wonder if our leadership, and I think that their motivations are not negative. I'd like to believe that. They really believe they're protecting something, that those lines are important and they want to protect something. And I think Moshe also wanted to protect the identity of the Jewish people and he wanted to hold on to the identity of the tribe. And maybe he thought it would have undermined all that. I don't know. But there's a price to pay for this desire to protect and exclude. And I think it's always worth asking the question if the price is worth it or not. And I find that not enough people who are comfortably in are worrying about that question. You know, most of my peers and neighbors who don't face this challenge aren't really worried about it. Yeah, it's amazing. The complacency of those who already are in and have no questions. The time questions arise is when their children right, end up in the army and university and end up meeting someone who is not considered to be Jewish by the rabbinate. And suddenly then it becomes very concerning and they are then privy to the enormous complexity of that kind of identity. I wonder, we talked about Vayikov ben Aisha, this word of punching a hole in the divine through the curse. I wonder if we could look at punching a hole in the divine by our inability to find compassion or a form of religious education, a form of extending a hand to people, again, particularly the people who are entitled to come here by the law of return and extending them an invitation to come fully in by dint of their being citizens of the land of Israel and identifying as Jews in the land of Israel. And that was something I believe it was Rev Unterman, maybe it was Rev Gorin before him, who wanted to argue that if you served in the army, that was already enough of a standard to be considered Jewish, which I thought was really quite brilliant. If you're willing to die for the Jewish state, then perhaps you should be allowed entry into the Jewish people, full entry. Yeah, I think it's a real problem. And it comes down to, I think, in some level, what is the primary job of Jewish leadership? And I realize there's a genuine machloka to debate about it. Is it to protect the standards or values of Torah and mitzvot that you think you're there to protect? Or is the primary job to do chesed and take care of people and help people? 
not by abandoning those other values and laws, but by trying to find your way through them so you can help people. And I respect the fact that the extremes are problematic, but I guess what frustrates me most is what you alluded to earlier, and maybe as part of a story, where was the rest of the tribe of Don? You know, where were all the other people that knew this young man's story, that knew his mother's story, and where were they before it came to the point where he and his brother are in this terrible conflict, where was everybody else? And that, to me, is the missing piece of the story. And I ask that same question about my own community. Why is it that certain things get everybody very fired up and they're willing to go out and fight and other things they just aren't bothered by? And that's very hard for me. There's something ironic that the idea of stoning the Mikhalel comes juxtaposed to putting to death anyone who takes the life of another, which really brings back the shadow of the Moshe story. Again, an interesting question whether Moshe was a murderer or Moshe was correct in terms of saving the Ivri. Definitely that question still, I think, needs to be asked. But what ends that unit right before the stoning, you shall have one standard for stranger and citizen alike. Now, here God is talking about, I think, the blasphemer and the murderer, right? Whether you murder a Jew or a non-Jew, right? That's one standard. And on a broader level, this idea that the ger is like the Ezrach, right? Even those who are not fully in should be treated in the manner of the Ezrach, of the citizen, for I am the Lord God. And then it continues to describe the end of the story. That's where the story ends. So there's something a little bit ironic that God is saying, Kager ke Ezrach, which leads me to think, wait a minute, should he not have been included like the Ezrach? But ultimately, the reading of the story is he is going to be treated in judgment like anyone else, right? And blasphemy is a capital punishment. But really, that equating of the Ger and the Ezrach might be something we take more to heart that maybe the Ger should become the Ezrach if we're already looking at them as having a certain degree of equality. Or minimally, they all deserve the same mishpat, right? Now, maybe you'll avoid the future problem. If you do start treating everybody equally, maybe everybody will live up to that responsibility or task. Okay. We end on a little bit of a downer, Nechama. Yeah, absolutely. Last time we were very positive about holiness and relationships and finding God and everything. And now we're like, "Uh uh-oh, look at all these problems that the Jewish people are facing. Yes, but I'll end with something perhaps positive, the idea of language, right? The Parsha is Emor and God speaking to Moses. And yes, unfortunately, at the end of the Parsha, we have language being misused. Perhaps the takeaway is being more careful with our language, right? That on one hand, I said, yes, you can dial back, right? Why do we take blasphemy so seriously? It's language. Can't we do a tikkun? On the other hand, we say sticks and stones can break my bones. Names will never harm me. But it's not true. Names actually are very harmful. Language used unintentionally or harshly or violently actually can be as traumatic or leave as much as a wound. And perhaps the takeaway is we start with Amur of God to Moshe, we devolve into a perverse use of language. And perhaps, you know, what we can take away is a more focused intentionality in how we use language, and particularly to those who are vulnerable right? Not mocking those who are vulnerable in our society, not inciting those, not reminding those of their vulnerability or disability in the way it seems to me the Israelite man might have done to this hybrid.
and maybe not to use angry, hateful speech, even when you feel justified, even Absolutely. when you feel you're totally yes. in the right and other person's in the wrong. Yeah. Don't go down that road. Never going to end well. It will not end well. Well, but we're going to end well because, uh, Nahama, thank you so much. I learned a lot. I imagine everybody that's listening learned a lot. And thank you for your time and effort and energy. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, everybody, that will uh, wrap us up for this time. Have a Shabbat Shalom, and please continue listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.